In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, I guess a review, we've been discussing the Shepherd of Hermas. Shepherd of Hermas, as we said, is broken up into three different sections. The first section is consists of five visions. The second session uh, section consists of 12 mandates or commandments. And then the third section is made up of 10 parables. And this is a series of visions and revelations that have been revealed to this man whose name is Hermas. Uh, in the first or second century, and he was told by this angel to write down all that he saw and experienced and to share it with the church for the sake of the salvation of the church. And it's something that has been read throughout the church at the time. Even some of the early church fathers like St. Irenaeus believed that it was canonical, should be included as in the canon of scripture. We do not consider it to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it is beneficial and edifying for us, which is why we read it. We've already discussed the five visions that he saw, and we've discussed so far nine of the commandments out of the 12. Today we're going to speak about the last two, and then we're going to start the parables um, to speak about those. Um, the, the last parable, well, the ninth parable, uh, which we won't discuss today, it is, I think, the longest of all of the parables and maybe the most interesting. God willing, the next time um, we will discuss um, that one, um, and then the tenth one is very short. So we'll see how far we get today. Um, so this is the 10th mandate. So these commandments are like guides and, and commands that the God is giving to the people, like certain things that they, they should follow. Okay. And I have just some select quotations from, from them. So here, this 10th mandate is that sadness is worse than a lack of confidence or anger. It says, there are those who have never made deeper inquiry into the truth, nor about God. They merely believe while they are involved in business, wealth, pagan friendship, and many other commitments of this world. People intent on such matters fail to grasp the parables of the Godhead, for these occupations keep their minds in darkness. They are corrupted and become barren, just as good vineyards, when not cared for, grow barren with thorns and various weeds. So believers who become involved in the aforementioned numerous occupations lose their understanding and are altogether without perception for justice. So it's saying it's easy for us to be uh, distracted by being too involved in the world, right? So if we have uh, here, he says, uh, people who merely believe but are involved in business, wealth, pagan friendship, and other commitments of this world. Now, someone might ask, is it possible for a person to live without being involved in these things? You know, like all of us, for instance, we have to work. Um, we care about things that are in the world, things that we need to do, commitments that we have. Um, and so how is it possible that we can be, you know, Christians and believers uh, while at the same time living in the world and having to deal with these things? We deal with these things as of necessity, you know? We work because it's necessity, right? Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we, we do things not because we need to do them, but because it becomes like our primary goal or even an idol in our life that we do it because we find maybe fulfillment in it. It's not even wrong to find fulfillment in something. God gives us talents, and when we work with the talents he's given us, we, we have a sense of joy and fulfillment that comes with it. But we have to have priorities. Here he's referring to those people who merely believe, like I will live my life in every way that I want to. And the belief is like one aspect of that, you know, kind of like in addition to my hobbies and my career and my family and my friends and all the other things, one of those things on that list of things is my faith, right? Maybe that's how a lot of people approach faith is that it's just one more thing on top of all the other things. 
But if you examine, uh, you know, how long we will be able to participate and to do and how important are those things, we realize that the faith should be the primary. It should be the main thing. It should be the thing on which everything else kind of is, is secondary, right? So, so here he's, he's, he's not saying that those things are unimportant, but he's saying it is not enough just to place faith as one more thing in that list. Faith and the worship of God and the belief in God is the most fundamental because it is the only one that abides. It's the only one that remains. It's the only one that after you know, the end of our life, we no longer have money, we no longer have you know, friends or family relationships or such. The only thing that will remain is our relationship with God. So invest the time that we have now on earth to build that instead of being distracted by many things. When they hear about the Godhead and truth, their mind is taken up with their business and they understand absolutely nothing. It is different with those who have the fear of God and make inquiry into the divine nature and truth with hearts directed to the Lord. They understand more quickly what is told them and penetrate its meaning because they have the fear of the Lord. Wherever the Lord dwells, there also is much understanding. Cling to the Lord and you will grasp and understand everything. This is also describes that in order for us for, to truly understand what God is telling us to do, we have to make an effort to practice. We have to make an effort to do and to live according to what he has asked and what he has said. I cannot just treat God as, again, one of these other many things that I study and analyze and know from a distance, but God has to be something that I surrender to him. It's a surrender. It's a, it's a choice where I give up my life to him in order for me to experience him to the fullest, as opposed to let me just read about God. Let me read about him the way I read about science, the way I read about the news, the way I read about anything else, and gain knowledge, knowledge, knowledge about it, but never really live it or put it into full practice. So that's why he's saying, wherever the Lord dwells, there is also much understanding. But if the Lord is not dwelling and we are not practicing what it is that we believe, then we will not understand. He goes on and he says, let me tell you now, slow-witted man, how melancholy wears out the Holy Spirit and again lightens it. When the man of divided purpose applies himself to any practice and fails in it because of his divided purpose, this melancholy enters into him and the Holy Spirit is in gloom and is worn out. So also when violent anger clings to the man about some matter, he is very much embittered. Melancholy enters the heart of the angry man. Melancholy is like sadness. He is then distressed at the action he performed and repents because he did evil. Now this melancholy seems to bring salvation because he repents of having done evil. So he's speaking about like two different kinds of sadness. Just as St. Paul, he spoke about like two kinds of sorrow. There is like the godly sorrow and the worldly sorrow. The worldly sorrow is the sorrow that I experience in the world, meaning depression and sadness and anger and, and, and you know, depression of just like feeling like the li life is without purpose, without direction, without meaning, unhappy, unhappiness. This is the worldly sorrow. But then he speaks about the godly sorrow. The godly sorrow is the sorrow that leads to repentance, that I regret my actions, I regret what I have done, I regret maybe the lifestyle that I have chosen to live and I want to change. This is the godly sorrow that actually God promotes in us. 
You know, when we speak about mourning over our sins, weeping over our sins, this is the godly sorrow. It maybe is uncomfortable in the moment, but it leads to salvation and it leads to ultimate joy, as opposed to the worldly sorrow, which just leads into further darkness, further depression, further sadness, and maybe ultimately, for some people, even leads them to suicide because it is a hopelessness. There is no hope in in that because the person doesn't see any joy in life that comes from God. He goes on again. He says, clothe yourself with cheerfulness, which always finds favor with God and is acceptable to him. Rejoice in it, for every cheerful man does good, has good thoughts, and despises melancholy. On the other hand, the melancholy man is always committing sin. In the first place, he commits sin because he brings melancholy to the Holy Spirit that was given to man as a spirit of gladness. In the second place, by bringing melancholy to the Holy Spirit, he commits a grave sin because he does not intercede with God nor confess to God. When we are filled with this sadness and depression, maybe it makes us not even want to turn to God. It's just a sense of hopelessness. There's no point in even even standing before God, speaking to God, doing anything positive at all, trying to serve others. I'm completely paralyzed by my sense of sadness that I'm unable to do anything good. Instead, he is saying we should rejoice, right? How is it that we can rejoice? We rejoice when we see that the things that God has given us is far greater than whatever condition we are in the world. You know, many of us experience all kinds of suffering, all kinds of tragedy even in the world that brings sadness, sadness that's always in our mind. How is it that we combat such sadness? Well, if we remember the good things God has actually done, the goodness that God has been doing and is continuing to do and will continue to do for us, that he has conquered this world, that whatever sadness we might experience here will not last. It will not last forever. It It will be for a time, but then it will end. And when it ends, all that will remain is the goodness that comes from God, the presence of God, the eternal life, and so on. So being with God and realizing even that whatever sadness maybe we are experiencing in the world or difficult times, God is actually using for our benefit to allow us to grow in him, to allow us to turn to him, that there is a solution even for this, that God can grant us peace and fulfillment even in the midst of this. This is why a Christian should be a joyful person. Maybe this is one of the most effective means of evangelism is simply being happy, being happy. The world is filled with sadness. There are so many people who are sad. If we as believers are also sad, like the rest of the world, then what differentiates us from them? What differentiates us? If we are saying that we have been given all these great promises and all these great gifts and blessings and hope of eternal salvation, all that, shouldn't we be much, much more happy than the typical person in the world? But if we find that we are not, and we are just like everyone else, then this says something maybe to the world about what we really believe. Maybe what we believe is just in the head. It's just some facts and information. Maybe it hasn't entered into the heart, and I truly live it out every day. Eleventh mandate, speaking about the true and false prophets. It says, he pointed out to me men sitting on a bench, and another man sitting on a chair. Do you see the men sitting on the bench? He said to me. Yes, sir, I replied. These men are believers, he said, and the man sitting on the chair is a false prophet who corrupts the understanding of God's servants. However, he corrupts the understanding of those who are doubters, not of the believers. These doubtful men then come to him as to a wizard and ask him about their future. 
that false prophet without having in himself any power from a divine spirit then speaks with them along the lines of their questions in accordance with their evil desires and fills their soul just as they wish. What is the difference here between the false prophet and the true prophet? The true prophet says the truth and the false prophet says what you want to hear. Right? The false prophet is the one who entices people by convincing them or, or, or telling them what they secretly already want and so they are attracted to falsehood. Because falsehood often feels better than truth, you know, especially when we don't fully understand truth. If we truly understood the truth that God is bringing us, again, we go back to the message of eternal salvation. It's eternal life. But there are things that, and decisions that I need to make now in my life that might be uncomfortable. Things that I might need to do or not do that make me uncomfortable now in this life. So it's not a, it's not a pleasant conversation. You know, there's um, a story of this prophet in the Old Testament whose name is Micaiah, and he was a true prophet. And the king, whenever he would want to go to war, he would ask all of his prophets, all of the people who were servants, he would tell them, should I go to war or not? Is God going to grant me victory in the war? And all the prophets would tell him, yes, of course, God will be with you in the war. Go and fight, and you will be successful and all this stuff. Except for Micaiah, who was the only true prophet, he would go to the king and says, no, you're going to lose. Don't go to war. So the king said about him, I hate him, right? Why? I hate him because he tells me the truth. I hate him because his message is repulsive to me because I don't want to believe the truth. I want to believe the lie. And so this is what makes false prophets so successful because the message that they bring is one that everyone wants to hear. Everyone would rather hear the sweet message that they come, that, oh, you're fine the way you are and everything is great and all that stuff. Everybody wants to hear that right as opposed to maybe hearing the truth that comes from the mouth of the true prophets of god empty as he is it is empty answers that he gives to empty minds for whatever inquiry is made his answer is directed to the emptiness of a man however some of the words he utters are true for the devil fills him with his own spirit to see whether he can break down one of the just so those who are strong in the faith of the lord clothe themselves with truth and do not cling to this kind of spirit. No, they keep a distance from such spirits. Here he says, some of the words he utters are true. Meaning, how is it that a false prophet is going to gain credibility? Because not 100% of the things that he says are false. Some of the things he says are true in order for us to simply believe whatever comes out of their mouth, right? And this is the way that the devil operates. He gives us enough truth so that we are convinced that whatever he says is trustworthy, and then we believe everything, even the lies after that. So the only time that the devil says truth is when it is part of a bigger lie, a lie that maybe is not the immediate action or immediate statement, but some plan that he has for the future, something that he is kind of ensna ensnaring us in that will then kind of cause us to fall. This is the last mandate about covetousness. In the forefront are the desire of another man's wife or another man's or another wife's husband, the desire of profuse wealth, of many useless foods and drinks, and of numerous other foolish luxuries. For every luxury is foolish and empty for the servant of God. Such desires then are evil and death-dealing to the servants of God. An evil desire of this kind is the daughter of the devil. Therefore, one has to abstain from evil desires and by abstention live to God." The idea that 
These desires that we have, these fleshly desires, are an obstacle between us and God. Back to what he was saying about being distracted by the world. This is another distraction. The distractions of the flesh that we pursue and spend so much time and energy and effort pursuing the things of the flesh, that that becomes my primary goal in life. My primary goal in life is to be wealthy. My primary goal in life is to be, you know, is to have whatever kind of pleasure that I want. My, my primary goal is not to have to work and to just rest and relax and do nothing else in my life but this. These luxuries that he says are foolish, are, are, these desires are what cause the servant of God to fall. Because they separate us from God. Because instead of giving the spirit what it needs, we are constantly just focusing only on the flesh. Those are the mandates. Does anyone have any comments about any of the mandates um, before we move on to the parables? Okay. Here are the parables. Parable number one. Man has no abiding city. He said to me, you know that you servants of God are living in a foreign country, for your city is far from the city. Now if you know the city in which you are eventually to dwell, why do you secure fields, rich establishments, houses, and superfluous dwellings? The, the person who secures such things for this city does not think of turning off to his real city. Foolish, miserable man of divided purpose, do you not realize that these superfluities belong to someone else and are in control of another? The example I like to give is this. Imagine that you're on a road trip and you're going here from Houston to, say, Chicago. And so you get in your car and you start driving. And then you need to make a pit stop. So you stop somewhere along the way, let's say in Oklahoma. And then you enjoy your time there because you see around you that there are so many nice things to do and there's nice restaurants and nice people. And so you begin to um, delay. And instead of just filling up your car and moving on, you begin to delay and enjoying yourself and spending more and more time to the point where you eventually even forget that you're actually driving to Chicago and instead you just sit there and you dwell and live in Oklahoma now from now on, completely forgetting where you're actually going. This is kind of like this scenario that when we begin to be too attached to the place that we are, we forget that we're actually on a journey. That's why we call ourselves sojourners. We are travelers. We are not, we are not at home here. We are not at home in the flesh. So when we come, become too comfortable here, this is where we forget where we are going. I was recently watching um, the movie of the story of um, Father uh, Faltaos, the, the Syrian. He is a monk who lived in the Syrian monastery. And uh, one of the things he would do as he would spend a lot of time making for himself like these head coverings, like these cloth head coverings. He would take a piece of cloth and he would sew it and he would spend a lot of time making them. And immediately after he would make the head covering, he would rip it up. And he would say to himself like, why should I have anything? Why should I have any possessions? This is, I'm going to lose this anyway. You know, essentially trying to detach himself from the love of any possession, right? By doing that. Even the things that he spent a lot of effort in making, he didn't want to have any emotional connection or attachment to it. So this is what he's saying here is we are living in a foreign country. Anyone who is living in a foreign place, what do they want? They want to go home. This is they want to go back to the place where they are. Maybe our home we don't realize is in heaven. We have made our homes here. And so we are content to be here. And actually, when it's time for us to go to heaven, maybe we're afraid to go 
or we don't want to go, or we want to cling to this life. But actually what we are going to is even better than where we are now. So then he says, therefore you must be careful while living in a foreign land, not to acquire a bit more than adequate sufficiency. Be prepared so that when the ruler of the city wishes to expel you for resisting his law, you may come out of his city and enter your own, and there rejoice without insolence in the observance of your own proper law. What will happen when this city of yours that you are dwelling in, this foreign land, expels you because its values are different than yours? You know, we've spoken about this before, but the kind of persecutions that are going to come upon the church. And we begin to see it even now. The kinds of values, the kinds of beliefs that our society is adopting are more and more in stark contrast to what we can accept as Christians. And it is more and more being forced and thrust upon us as believers to accept the things that are vile and perverse. What will happen when the day comes when we are forced to accept something that we are against or the consequence is that we are ejected from society? that we cannot participate in it. Actually, even in the book of Revelation, when it speaks about the mark of the beast, it says that the mark of the beast is something that is placed on the forehead um, of those people. And unless you have the mark of the beast, you cannot buy or sell. You cannot interact with the world. You cannot engage with society unless you have the mark of the beast. And I'm not saying that any particular thing is the mark of the beast. What I'm saying is the idea and the principle is that there will come a time where we must choose and if we choose to have a, a life of comfort, then this will require us to blaspheme the name of God. Or if we choose not to blaspheme the name of God and not to accept what is evil, the consequence is going to be very difficult and it's going to be painful and it's going to require that maybe in some sense we can no longer do or participate in the comforts that we are used to. So here he's saying, where is your city? Where, what is it that, where is it that you live? Be prepared so that when the ruler of this city wishes to expel you for resisting his law, you may come out of the city and enter into your own, right? Are we saying to ourselves, you know what, if I'm ex expelled from the city, it's fine because this is not my home. This is not my city. The place that I desire to go is greater than this place, and so I'm happy to go, and there is by no means that I'm going to blaspheme the name of God and to, to, to work against God's commandments in order for me to continue to have comfort here, because where I am going is far greater than here. A person with such a mindset doesn't feel like they are losing, but they are gaining. But if instead our hearts are so attached to this world and the comforts that are in it, without understanding of what is to come and what is it God has prepared for us in our own city, then maybe we will be tempted in order to blaspheme. The second parable, the alms of the rich to the poor are rewarded. As I was walking in the country, I observed an elm and a vine and compared them and their fruits. The shepherd appeared and said to me, what are you thinking of by yourself? I am thinking about the elm and the vine, I said. They are very well adapted to one another. These two trees, he said, are a symbol for the servants of God. If only I could know the type which these trees you mentioned represent, I said. You have the elm and vine before your eyes. He said, yes, sir. I answered this vine, he said. Sorry, yes, sir, I answered. This vine, he said, bears fruit, but the elm is sterile. So you have this vine and this other plant that he's calling the elm. The vine is bearing fruit, but the elm does not bear any fruit. 
However, the vine cannot bear fruit and let it, lets it climbs up the elm. So the elm is kind of like a plant that doesn't have any fruits in itself, but it allows the vine to climb up in order to grow and to bear fruit. Otherwise, it spreads all over the ground, and if it does bear, the fruit is rotten because it has not been hanging before the elm. So this is the, the parable he's saying. So when the vine has been attached to the elm, it bears fruit both from itself and from the elm. So you see that the elm yields fruit also, not a bit less than the vine. More, in fact. How does it yield more, sir, I said. Because, he said, the vine that is hanging on the elm yields copious and sound fruit, but if it is spread on the ground, it bears rotten fruit and little of it. This parable then applies to all the servants of God, to both the poor as well as the rich man. So he's now going to explain what he's talking about. He's speaking that the vine is representing the poor person. And the elm is representing the rich person, okay? So he says, Sir, I said, how is this the parable of the rich and the poor man? Let me know. I shall tell you, he, uh, he answered. The rich man has great wealth, but so far as the Lord is concerned, he is poor because he is distracted by his wealth. His confession, his prayer to the Lord is very limited. That, that which he makes is insignificant and weak and has no power from above. So when the rich man goes up a poor man, sorry, I said the opposite. The rich is the vine and the, the poor man is the elm. When the rich man goes up to a poor man and helps him in his needs, he has the assurance that what he does for the poor man can procure a reward from God. For the poor man is rich in his power of intercession with God and his confession. Therefore, the rich man does not hesitate to supply the poor man with everything. On the other hand, the poor man who has been helped by the rich intercedes for him and gives thanks to God for his benefactor. And the latter is constantly solicitous for the poor man that he may not be in want during his life because he, does, because he knows that the poor man's intercession is acceptable and rich in God's sight. Both fulfill their function in this way. The poor man makes intercession, these are his riches, and gives back to the Lord who supplied him. In the same way, the rich man unhesitatingly puts the riches he received from the Lord at the disposal of the, of the poor. This is a great and acceptable work in the sight of God. So he's saying what? That both of them are like helping one another. The person who has received riches, his service is to give of what he has received to the poor. And the poor man, he is helping the rich by praying and interceding for him because he is thankful for what he has given him. So God allows those who are poor to benefit the rich, and God allows those who are rich to benefit the poor. The person who, who fails in this is either the poor man who does not thank God and rejects what he has, the, the kind of the state he is in that God has allowed him to be in, or the rich man who is greedy and who hoards everything for himself and does not share what God has given him with the other. So in this way, he's saying there's like the symbiotic relationship between the vine and the elm, just as there is also a relationship between the rich and the poor. I think this is a good stopping point. Um, God willing, next time we'll continue talking more about the parables, um, uh, and then we'll conclude this, um, this book. Any comments before we conclude? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask you, O God, to be with us and to bless us and to help us to understand all of these parables and all of your commandments that we meditate on. Help us to learn the lessons that we need to understand in our life 
so that even though we are weak and sinful and go easily astray, that we are reminded by your words that guide us and help us, O Lord, to continue walking the path of life. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.